Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. up here in verse 1 of chapter 8, and we'll get several, actually four of them, four pictures, signs, if you will, that were for the Jewish people. And then a final one that we can kind of take a look at as it moves all the way through history, and that's this very strange phenomena called blood moons. And so we'll look at those tonight and really kind of dig into what they are biblically. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. Lord, that you wrote to the world nearly 2,800 years ago these words that in a large measure are yet to be fulfilled. There's still history on the horizon that you told the world about, and we're waiting for it to happen. And so it bolsters our faith. It causes us to rest and trust in you. It causes us to get busy Lord, about your business, our Father's business. And so would you speak to us tonight through your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, And thus says the Lord God, as he showed me, Behold a basket of summer fruit. And if you remember, summer fruit is kind of an interesting fruit because summer fruit requires the heat of the, of the summer. That's why it's called summer fruit. Uh, there are fruits that are harvested year-round, and there's spring fruit, there's winter fruit, and then there's summer fruit. The summer fruit requires the fire, if you will. It requires heat. There has to be something that's turned up. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And so he said, I see a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel, and I will not pass by them anymore. So you can see that this obviously isn't the very end, and so there's going to be a time, the Assyrian invasion, which that's going to look like it's going to be the end, but it is certainly pointing towards a time when the Lord is going to say, enough's enough. And that time is yet future, and we'll focus on that in a little bit. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God, and many dead bodies everywhere, and they'll be thrown out in silence. And so this very difficult picture. And so Amaziah, you might remember, is this um, prophet's focus at this point in time. So Amos is beginning to resume this prophecy against the nation Israel. And the louder and the more insolent he becomes, the more he's drawing attention to himself. And finally he just says, look, here's the deal. Israel's like a basket of summer fruit. Now, for those of you that like peaches and those types of things, you you know that they have a very short shelf life, right? You can't store peaches indefinitely. If you put them in a basket, you better eat them right away or or they will rot. And so the picture here is that if it's the time, it's the time. You can't delay. There's an urgency to this word that is being given to the nation Israel It's like there's no time to delay. You guys are on the wrong path. God is not okay with this. It is time that you recognize the season that you're in because this fruit is ripe and it's right right now. Well, what fruit was that? It was the nation. The nation of Israel at this time, the ten northern tribes, remember Judah's in the south, so the ten northern tribes have kind of spun off into this conglomeration of worshiping God in the temple that was in Samaria and at the same time worshiping all the false gods. And so here's where it kind of ties into not just Israel today, but the world today. The world is trying to homogenize or amalgamize, is trying to take and blend everything together and kind of just stir it up really well so that basically all roads lead to heaven. It's like no matter what you believe, as long as you believe it hard enough, it's okay. If you just have faith in faith, you're going to be fine in the end. If you just simply have some form of belief system, then as long as you believe in something, then God is going to recognize your belief and you'll, just, you'll be okay with God. 
That's where the children of Israel were. They held on one hand that they believed in Yahweh, Lord of hosts, that they believed in the one true God, and on the other, they're worshiping the false god, Baal, the god that's represented by this altar that has bronze cows on the corner. And so as Amos is speaking these words, you can almost imagine, it's like, here you have one group over here saying the Shema, they're, they're re- recounting the ironic blessing of number six, and then right next to them are some guys worshiping a cow. That is a problem that we face in our world. Because a lot of Christians are tolerant to the extent that they don't actually say anything about false religion. So when your friends come over and they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Mormon. It's like, well, well, they're Christians too. Or, you know, well, my friend's Buddhist and, you know, they're really nice people. That's absolutely true. They are really nice people. Kind, but they're also lost. They don't know the true God. You see, the church has been called to be salt and light, just as Israel had been called to be salt and light during their time. They were the one group of people on the earth that were supposed to be representing the actual Lord, the one true God. And instead, they were kind of representing everyone and everything. And so he says, the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day. Again, you can underline, circle that phrase as we find it through the Old Testament. It almost always points at least in some measure to the time that we call the very last days. Very specifically when God will judge the earth for what's been done to Israel and bring Israel into repentance and belief in Messiah. Or in verse 3 you can see that. And of course, the prophecy of these, this horrific scene of these dead bodies everywhere is the same exact thing that you see in Revelation 14 to 19, this horrible battle, ultimately called the Battle of Armageddon, where the dead will be plentiful in the Middle East. Interesting things going on in the world right now. The United States, you know, I had a conversation with the guy that was, we were talking about you know, kind of what's going on in the Middle East. And, you know, we, we were in the middle of the conversation. This news article pops up that the United States had just bombed a factory in Iraq. Like, we're in the midst of pulling our troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan right now. But what they blew up was a drone factory funded by the Iranian regime. Just loaded with missiles as you watch the impact of our smart bombs on that factory, you can see hundreds of secondary explosions. Secondary explosions come from the fact that there are munitions inside of that building. It was supposed to be producing buses. The Middle East is still the powder keg it's always been. The British Navy just sent a destroyer into the Black Sea shattered by Soviet jets. Vladimir Putin said, well, if we'd have sunk it, I don't think it would have started World War III. The Middle East is still a very, very, very tenuous place. And the focus of it is still Israel. And so here Amos sees this history of what goes on regarding the Jewish people in their land that God had given them. And he says, look, you guys need to square, square yourselves away. It is true of God before us who can be against us, but it's also true if you abandon God, then you have no right to seek his protection. Bad things happen when you turn your back on God. And so he gives them now a very somber or sobering sermon in verses 4 through 14. Hear this. And so he begins to tell them the problems that existed during that day. And you can see many similarities to our day and time. Who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. Saying, 
when will the new moon be passed? That we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat. So you can kind of see, it's like, can we hurry up and get church over? Because we got stuff to do. We got a buck to make. The new moon was a feast day. And so when the new moon came up, it was automatically another Sabbath. And so here is really a dual Sabbath. There's two of them. And it's like, man, that, I got to go church twice in one week. Making Nephath small and the shekel large. So this is the very same thing that we would say, okay, I've got this small amount for a lot of money. It's like, I don't know if you've noticed, the, the price of beef specifically during the pandemic just skyrocketed. It's like what you used to be able to buy for $2 a pound is now $4 a pound. It's the same basic concept. It's like it should have been this, but it's this. You're taking advantage. Falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell bad wheat. And so the prophet raises his voice basically against people who are taking advantage of others. Saying, look, as long as we get ours, then what happens to them doesn't matter. And so he he denounces them. He says, look, this is not okay with God. This is always a problem for every nation. It was really part of Israel's history, but it's a problem for every nation, especially when that nation has the blessings of God upon it. God expects us to do things his way, which means he cares for the poor, he cares for the needy, he hates deceit, he despises lies. In fact, the last admonition of Scripture is actually the Lord reminding us that All liars have no part in the kingdom of God. So God really doesn't like deceit. And so he's he's saying to them, look, you guys need to change the way you function, to change the way you act. You you can't be greedy. You can't be impatient during the holidays. It's like, don't try and, you know, it's kind of like in our world. Like, you know, we just basically skip over most everything. We get right to the day, whatever sales we have, and then tomorrow's the the after Christmas sale. Like we skip over Christmas to get to the after Christmas sale. The same thing was happening in Israel. It's like it's Passover. It's supposed to be a day of rest. It's supposed to be a high holy day. It's supposed to draw you near to the Lord. Instead of drawing you near to the Lord, everybody's complaining that they couldn't go out and work because on the Sabbath you weren't allowed to work and they would get in trouble with the rabbis. And so because they're in trouble with the rabbis, they can't make a profit. It's a terrible thing when the church gets to the place to where we're more concerned with turning a prophet than turning our hearts to God. And so the Lord basically says, you really don't want to do this, do you? Notice what Amos says to them. Verse 7. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. And surely I will never forget any of their works. And I want you to just underline the I wills here. You're going to find there are seven of them. The land shall not it tremble for this. Everyone mourn who dwells in it. Shall it not swell like a river and heave and subside like the river of Egypt? So it's pretty clearly speaking of an earthquake. Land doesn't normally do that, but it does when there's an earthquake going on. And it shall come to pass again in that day. Underline that phrase so it tells you, gives you a clue as to when this ultimately is going to be fulfilled. It certainly was partially fulfilled when the Assyrians came under Sennacherib. But it hasn't been completely fulfilled because the conditions still exist. They're still there. It shall come to pass in that day that I will make the sun go down at noon. There it is. It's a full lunar eclipse, middle of the day. That produces a blood moon, by the way. And I will darken the earth in broad daylight. And I will turn your feasts into mourning. I'll turn your songs into lamentations. I'll bring sacrifice 
sackcloth to every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like the morning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Notice how God begins his I wills. You don't turn to me if you won't turn from these things. If you won't turn to me is what he's saying, then I will not forget what you've done. And again, while it's very important we don't make a direct equivalence here, it's always been repentance is required for forgiveness. You have to turn away from the things that you were were doing and towards the Lord. You can't claim God's grace today and still keep on sinning. You have to abandon the sin and repent. That's why John the Baptist's message was so hated. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn around, go the other way, give your life to the Lord. And if you give your life to the Lord, then there should be a change of action that follows. And here's what happened with the Jewish people. They claimed to serve God, but they kept right on doing what they were told not to do. They kept living exactly how God instructed them not to live. They walked in the ways of Baal instead of the ways of Yahweh. And they're saying, yeah, but we're still going to church. We're still going to temple. We still say our morning prayers. We, we rub our mezuzah on our doorpost. We make sure that we do the outward things. We still have our phylacteries on our foreheads and our wrists. We still put on our talus. We still cover our head when we pray. But there's no internal holiness that's resulted in external holiness. People sometimes believe that you can have the grace of God without turning from your sin. The Bible nowhere teaches that message. God's grace is free. It will cost you your entire life, though. You give up your life to follow Christ. And now the life that we live, we live because of and for him. And so in the very same way, the Jewish people... Because they were so blessed by God. Remember when they got to the land of Canaan, it was filled with giants, right? It was problematic. There were other peoples living there that collectively we call the Canaanites. But those Canaanites were comprised of the Philistines and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Moabites, the Girgashites, all of these ite people that you find in your Bible. That's who lived there. But God said, this is my land, I'm giving it to my people, so I'm going to give you victory over these nations that had been there previously. You're going to drive them out. And with them, you are going to drive out the sin that they engage in. That's a sign of the way we have to live our lives today. God's placed us in a land of blessing, Canaan. He's given us all kinds of things that we can be grateful to him for, but he does not want us returning to the sin that is inherent in the land. That's why he told the Jewish people, look, these people, you cannot intermarry with them. Not because they weren't beautiful, not because they weren't successful, not because they weren't handsome, not because they weren't nice, not because they didn't have nice farms, not because they weren't good ranchers. They are entrenched in a life that's displeasing to the Lord. And if you marry into that, you're going to start being exactly like they are. And so God says, I want you to be holy unto me. It was not a racial thing. It was not a financial thing. It was a God thing. God said, this is the kind of people I want you to be. And so in order to do that, here's the criteria that you need to follow. They didn't listen. They thought God was joking. Well, I can't possibly mean that. I mean, look at that farm. Look at those cows of Bashan. Look at what you have. You worship Baal. Look what the people who worship. They got great vineyards. In other words, they've got lots of cash. They were sexually promiscuous. And they were very, very, very politically connected one with another. And so there's a lesson there. 
just because people have something, just because they appear to be blessed, does not mean that they're blessed of God. You can have everything and have nothing. And so God says, I won't forget. What a terrible thing to have God say that to you. Because he says exactly the opposite to his children by grace and through faith. Amen. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. He doesn't remember our sins anymore. He puts them behind his back. They're buried in the depths of the sea. His right hand cannot find them. The scripture is clear what happens when you turn to the Lord. But when you turn away from the Lord, the exact opposite is true. It's like the Lord's going, do you want to keep what you already have? And so Amos tells him of this earthquake and how this end is going to come to them. And so he speaks to them that he would send darkness and this picture of this incredible blood moon that's going to be over Israel. And then he gives them a picture of this funeral. And not only does this actually happen, because Jeroboam II, who was the ruler at the time, dies. There's a military coup that comes on. You, you can read about part of this in Isaiah chapter 7, 2 Chronicles chapter 28. But here's all these military rulers, uh, the, the tributary nations of Aram and Damascus, so modern-day Syria, um, often called collectively Aram during that time called Ephraim a friend, these neighbors begin to war against each other, and things turn sour really quickly. And then finally the Assyrians come. The kings are killed. The king's sons are killed. Isaiah says there's these two leaders that raise up, Rezin and Pekah, and they come and they mock the Jewish people, and the Jewish people are taken captivity And ultimately, all of Israel is taken captive. For all intents and purposes, they cease to exist. And God's saying, look, this is how much I want your obedience. When I tell you this is how I want you to live, unless you want your life to look a whole lot like a funeral, you want to live the way God wants you to live. You can't live in your old dead past and expect to have the blessings of the Lord. And so God says, look, clean up your your deal here. And then finally, the, the armies of Tiglath-Pileser III come, and they, they move south, and Hosea is, is murdered, and you have this incredible picture of all these things, and an earthquake happens, which is actually well-documented in antiquity. Most of the cities in the modern, what we call modern-day Israel in the Jordan River Valley, and it doesn't really matter where you are, there is an earthquake fault that runs from one end of the Jordan River Valley all the way to the other end, down to the Red Sea. And it shows a destruction layer at exactly this time. And so as Amos and Hosea are writing, ultimately followed by Isaiah, the later prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, what Amos saw happened. The valley floor was like a river. The cities were destroyed. And so Amos describes this anguish that would accompany the Assyrian army as, long as, as well as these natural disasters. Verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I'll send famine into the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, here it comes, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. You can only turn a deaf ear so long to the things that God has already said when he no longer speaks. He says, look, I've told you enough already. You should have already gotten the picture. You should have turned. There should have been something that happened in your heart. The fact that you're doing nothing with what you already have is the reason you're not going to hear anything else. And so God says through Amos, you're going to have a drought, a famine of the words of the Lord. Now, for those of you that are students of the Bible, you know that drought came. Matter of fact, that drought was exactly the same length as the amount of time that the children of Israel were imprisoned in Egypt. 
It was 400 years long. From the time of the writing of the prophet Malachi until what we call the New Testament times, very specifically the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so God says, look, you, you, you got plenty. So from the time that Amos is writing to the time of Malachi will be another 400 years. So God didn't immediately go, okay, I'm not talking to you anymore. He was gracious even in the amount of time that it took to get to the final place. But God actually said, no more. You've got everything you need. And so what we call the whole Old Testament is complete with Malachi. So God speaks to them from the time of Adam all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the 12 tribes of children of Israel, through the time of the kings and the prophets. God's just speaking and talking to them. But they didn't like the message. And so they began going the other way. They'll wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They'll run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. One of the most terrible things that will ever happen to anyone who claims the name of the Lord is when God stops speaking. And probably many of you here that have walked with the Lord for a time can remember a time in your life where God was not speaking. And if you're honest with yourself and others, you'll look back and generally it's because there was something going on in your life. God was trying to get your attention. It's like, I'm not going to tell you anything else until you do something with what I've already told you. That happened to the children of Israel. But you'll not find it. For in the day, in that day, so now he moves again into the very last days, days that are still future to us tonight. The fair virgins, the strong young men, shall faint from thirst. And those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, They shall fall and never rise again. There are people that are very, very clingy when it comes to their religious leanings. Even when those religious leanings have proven to be unfruitful. Even when what is promised doesn't come true. And so God's basically saying, look, I'm introducing you to spiritual famine. Now here's what happened to the children of Israel. So you might remember that Moses, who's the author of the first five books of your Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the Jewish Torah, Moses is given the written word of God. That's followed up by the prophets, followed up by the wisdom writings, followed up by the histories, followed up by the latter prophets, So God keeps speaking, but they've got the written word of God. This is what God said. And ultimately, by the time Moses gets done writing, so when he writes Leviticus and Deuteronomy very specifically, as he writes, they have 613 things that they're now responsible for. Here's the things that God said to them. This is what I want you to be. This is how I want you to act. These are the dietary laws. These are the things that you should do. You know, if your goat, you know, runs over somebody else's goat, you need to give them another goat. He introduces this principle of equity. He said, if someone, you know, has a problem with his neighbor, go to your neighbor and resolve it with him. God was faithful to speak the word to them. It's now written. They have copies of it. It wasn't a guess. They didn't need an oral prophet. Well, here's the problem. When you compare what the Bible actually says with what some dude says about the Bible, pretty often you're going to find out it's not exactly the same thing. That's why the critical study of God's word needs to be accurate. 
You shouldn't add to or subtract from the words of this book, is how John writes in the book of Revelation. It's not a good thing to do that. So here God gives them what is his written testimony of himself. Well, we don't like that. And so they began to lead on the, lean on the Talmud. The Talmud was the oral law. These were the things that the rabbis had come up with. And while the rabbis were generally, I would think, good people, I would think even to a large degree wanting to be a pleaser of the Lord, they had the Pentateuch itself for thousands of years. If you look back on when that history actually took place, so, so they could go back to the history of Abraham, the history of Isaac, and the history of Jacob, all the way back to the time of Noah, and before that, the flood. So they had the history as God wanted them to know that for a period of history that encompassed about two and a half thousand years at that time. And so here are the children of Israel going, well, you know, we really don't like that. So the Torah was God's divine word. And they're going, well, that's really nice, but could you give us something else? So what did they get? They got the oral law, which is handed down by memory instead of by writing. And I don't know how good your memories are. Uh, Mine is not as sharp as it once was. Still pretty sharp. I'd like to think I have at least a couple of brain cells that are still talking to one another. But I can tell you it's not like it once was. And even at my sharpest, maybe you went back to where I was 30-something or early 40s when, you know, I would think that was probably about as sharp as I've ever been on this earth. If you had a story that was 15, 20 pages long, and you asked me to read it, remember it, and then repeat it, I'm pretty sure after the second, third, fourth retelling, it's not going to be close to what I was originally reading. It's just simply too much information. And so God gives them the written law so that they can follow the written law, and instead they choose the oral law, and the oral law has now moved away from God. It no longer represents the Lord. And so by the time Jesus comes, Jesus actually confronts them on this. He says, you have laid on your people a burden that neither you or your forebears could bear. It wasn't God's law that was that. It was the oral traditions of the Talmud. And so here the rabbis are going, yeah, you guys need us. Because we've studied, we've learned. We've given you this compilation of these things. And Amos is basically saying, "Mm, this is not going to be a good end. This is going to end in judgment. This is going to end in famine. You're going to have a dryness of God speaking to you if you don't take what you already know. Don't expect God to give you something else. It's funny how many times people will come to me and they have a problem with something that's going, maybe something going on in their life. And they'll, you know, we'll talk about it, and I'll go, well, you know, let's, let's see if we can find out what the Bible says about it. Well, no, 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 no. Let's not go there. I said, well, why don't you want to know what the Bible says? Well, because if, if you tell me what the Bible says, then I, I, I'm going to be obligated to do it. Yes, you are as a believer. That's absolutely true. That was the problem then. It's still the problem now. You share people the truth of what God's already said. They want another answer. That's what was going on with the Jewish people. We don't like what God has already said. We'd like to have another answer, please. So instead of doing what God had already told them, they're now doing what, in essence, God told them not to do. So how is this end coming? Well, it's coming in tragedy. That's how it's coming. There's going to be an earthquake. There's going to be darkness. There's going to be a funeral. That darkness, the prophet Joel saw as well. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood 
before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So this picture that we have in Amos is of the day of the Lord. Joel says, here's what's going to happen during the day of the Lord. Their feasts weren't going to quite go the way they wanted them. And that final judgment would just be God's going to stop speaking to them. It's interesting, when you travel to Israel, one of the places that we go is the Dan National Park. It's actually a national park in Israel. It's in the northern, almost on the border with Lebanon. And when you go there, as as you walk through this Canaanite ruin, the original inhabitants of the land, as you go by this gate that's believed was from the time of Abraham, as you wind kind of along the, the Jordan River, so the Dan River and the Jordan have now come together in Dan National Park, as you get up to the very end of the park before you'd wander a little bit and you'd be in a minefield that's in Lebanon, there's an altar and an oak tree. And there's this replica of the altar now because the stones have been torn down and used for other things, but there's this place. And this is the very place that's being referenced here. This is where they tried to blend the worship of God, Yahweh, with the worship of Baal. It's like, here we would worship God, and we could walk 50 feet and worship Baal. It's kind of like the food court. So you can get your corn dog over here, and your Panda Express over here, and your Subway over here, and you just go and get what you want, right? You get your hot dog on the stick. That's what they wanted to do religiously. So, well, we're, we're okay with, you know, worshiping God today, but yeah, I'm not, sure about, not so sure about tomorrow. And so God says, I'm going to give you a sign. What was that sign? The sign that they have here is a strange thing uh, that we actually had two series of them, two tetrads back in 2014, 2015. And they were the final two that will happen before the end of this century. And so the strange thing is what's happened in all the previous ones. And so I want to walk you through a little history. So God was speaking. He said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to darken the sun, going to darken the moon. During the day, it's going to be dark, and the moon is going to have a complete solar eclipse, which is what produces a blood moon. Oddly, that same Talmud actually referenced these things, as does the book of Acts and the book of Joel. It's kind of like God's been speaking. He's saying, look, You know, when you see these things, this is not good for the Jewish people. What are they? Why are they? Why would God pick something like this? If you run back in history, NASA actually tracks these things because they track uh, the orbits of the planets in our solar system, and they can run them backwards and find out exactly when the planets are aligned, when specifically the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun are aligned to cause this particular phenomena. And so in doing so, they can tell you exactly when total lunar eclipses occurred and occurred at the same time as the Jewish people were in the midst of worshiping God. In other words, on high holy days, high feast days like Passover, Yom Kippur, those types of things. And so if you go back in history, just as this one was from 2014, if you go back in history, you're actually going to find seven of them that have already occurred The eighth ones happened in 2014, and essentially, if you know anything about numerology and as far as it pertains to the Jewish people, the number eight is the number of completion. In other words, it would seem that the eighth ones, which have happened, are the final ones. Now, am I predicting the rapture of the church? Absolutely not. Am I telling you that I have a special word from the Lord that God told me, you know, by the end of 2010, excuse me, 2100, that, you know, the Lord's going to return. I'm not telling you that either, but I am telling you there are some unique things that happened every single time there have been a series of blood moons called a tetrad or four of them that have all happened on high holy days throughout the history of the Jewish people. 
The first one was the Feast of Tabernacles in 162-163. Any of you remember a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple and ultimately the Feast of Hanukkah was the rededication of that temple because he slaughtered a pig on the altar inside of the temple in Jerusalem so it was desecrated? That event happened during that particular set of blood moons. So the temple was desecrated in A.D. 162-163. That's the first one that happened on Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. The next one also on the Passover and Yom Kippur in A.D. 795 and 796. Probably most of you familiar with that name, King Charlemagne. Holy Roman Emperor established kind of a DMZ, a a demilitarized zone, if you will, between Christianity and guess what empire was rising in the mid-700s? You know it today as Islam. The Mohammedans, very specifically what would become the Ottoman Empire eventually. During that particular set of blood moons, that's when the DMZ was invaded. So, ending centuries of Arab invasions into the Western world, King Charlemagne attempts to stop that. It doesn't work. And in fact, if you know anything about the history of Europe, ultimately the Ottoman Empire stretched into modern-day Austria and Hungary, uh, into all the way really to part of China, and encompassed all of Persia. By the way, Iranians are not Iranians, they're Persians. We call them Iranians because they changed their name to Iran in 1973. But they're actually Persians. They've always been Persians. And they don't like it when you call them Arabs specifically because they're Persians, they're Shia, they're not Sunnis. But this would include all of Turkey, all of the Middle East. And so when you travel to Jerusalem today, When you look at the old city walls, a vast majority of what you're looking at are the remnants of the walls that began to be built when the Dome of the Rock Mosque was built in AD 750. You can kind of see how it's affecting the children of Israel. The third set, the Yom Kippur holidays of 842 and 843, Rome is finally attacked by Islamic invaders. So the seat of the Roman Empire. So from the time of Constantine, for 400 years, the largest empire in the world is effectively a Christian empire. Not anymore. What goes with it? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is now in the hands of the Muslims. And so when you travel today to Israel, there is no temple on the Temple Mount. There are Muslim mosques, four of them. They just built a brand new one in what used to be referred to as Solomon's Stables, which is actually an underground mosque underneath the Temple Mount itself. The Al-Aqsa, the Dome of the Rock, the Haram al-Sharif, Dome of the Chain, So you you can kind of see how God's saying, you know, when these things happen, it's not really all that great for Israel. The next one that happens, happens in a period that we kind of know here in America, 1490s. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know who sent him out? King Ferdinand, Isabella. You know what was also going on when he went out? Every last Jew was being kicked out of Spain. Spain had become the actual homeland for the Jews that had been dispersed from the Holy Lands. They landed in Spain. Spain was their refuge. And so Ferdinand and Isabella actually are the ones who now, during that time of that set of blood moons, four of them, which happened on the 
on Passover and the Feast of Trumpets from Columbus's own diary in the same month in which their majesties, Ferdinand and Isabella, issued the edict that all Jews should be driven out of the kingdom and its territories. In that same month, they gave me, in order to undertake with sufficient men, my expedition to the discovery of the Indies. So actually what ultimately would be celebrated by some as the discovery of the Americas, it's debatable whether that was Vasco da Gama or Columbus, how they did it and why they did it, very debatable. But the fact of the matter is what really happened is the Jews lost their secondary homeland that year. Interesting. The next two are really interesting. So Israel, by a UN mandate, becomes the, in essence, the state of the Jewish people on May 14th of 1948. Guess what happens next? Two more sets of blood moons, 1848, or 1948, 1949. And so that's the time that the Jewish people are once again attacked as they proclaimed their independence in 1948. The regular armies of Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq invade them. Israel fights a war of independence. They regain all of the land that was originally given to them and a whole bunch more. And then in order to keep peace, they give all of the land back. The next one, Happens in 1967. That's Israel's war of independence. Same thing. Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, Blood Moons, and the Israeli war of independence. What we call the Six-Day War. During the Six-Day War, Israel, in essence, fights the exact same armies. So there's a preemptive strike that's launched by Israel in self-defense against Egypt in the south. They destroy most of Egypt's planes on the ground. They begin to push back. They actually re-seize the Temple Mount. In re-seizing the Temple Mount, they actually now have control of all of Jerusalem. They push into the Golan Heights. They push all the way into southern Lebanon. They're all the way into the Sinai in Egypt with this minuscule army. And then after the sixth day, they give the Temple Mount back for peace. They say, we can't keep it. If we do, it's going to be war. It's going to be endless war. What have they had? Endless war anyway. They're still, in effect, in a de facto state of war. Israel's actually taken its own land back two full times, and they've been fighting to keep it ever since. The northern villages, when you travel into Israel, one of the crazy things is if you talk to, to Israelis that live in the north specifically. You know, it's like they have their safe room in the middle of their house, it's armored. It's basically a bunker in every single home. It's actually a requirement that you have to have one. Why? Because their neighbors surrounding them want to destroy them. They really mean that. doesn't make all of those that are surrounding them their enemies. It just simply is that the governments that surround them are saying, look, when did those things happen? Well, in 1973, it happened on Yom Kippur. So there are always high holy days. Now think back to what we just read in Amos. You guys don't want to do what I've already told you. So I'm going to give you a sign. That sign is a lunar eclipse. And when you have those lunar eclipses, when they happen on your high holy days, you need to beware. So every single time that has occurred in the last 2,000 years, Israel's ended up in a war. 
They've ended up fighting some major battle. They've been kicked out of their own land. And in fact, even the ones in 2014 and 2015, Israel is, guess what? At war with Lebanon and at war with Egypt in the south. And so God speaks to him and says, look, I want you to listen up. When I send this sign, you guys really need to pay attention because you keep doing the wrong thing. So what are we to learn from all of this? God actually uses blood moons for a sign, at least for Israel. I'm not suggesting that, you know, we need to go out there and say, oh man, a blood moon. But when they happen in Israel, and when they happen on Passover, they happen on the Feast of Trumpets, or they happen on Yom Kippur, you might want to pay attention. Why? Because many of the feasts that are relevant to Yahweh are actually associated with the moon, some way, shape, or form. They were the new moon holidays. That's what they were called. And so when God blots that out so that the new moon doesn't look like the new moon, he's trying to speak. He's like, hey, you know, this maybe needs to change. So when the prophet Joel, the book of Acts, the book of Revelation speak of these things, it's really trying to draw attention to the fact that God isn't playing around with what he says. It's like, here's what I said. This is what I want you to do. I expect you to do it. Jesus himself, but in those days the sun shall be darkened. The moon shall not give its light. It's an eclipse, by the way. They shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now here's the good news. There will be none, certainly in my lifetime. The next ones, I believe the last calculations I saw are towards the end of this particular century. So, so there's some time, at least as far as these blood moons are concerned. But God says, look, I'm going to do this again. And one of these times, these things that have been said by the prophet Amos, the final things are going to happen. For us, that means we need to be ready for the rapture. Because all that is contained in the Bible about the battle of Gog and Magog, the tribulation itself, all of those things can start well before the actual rapture happens. That's why when Christians are going, well, I won't be affected at all. Well, that's not exactly accurate. You won't experience the wrath of God, but it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be wars and rumors of wars. Those things could definitely happen before the end comes. And so for us, that means we should be busy about our Father's business. So many Christians are worried about so many things that don't matter. They're concerned with things that ultimately won't have any place in eternity. They're preaching bizarre gospels of all kinds of things except the gospel, the real one. The one that actually is capable of saving men's souls, women's souls. They're preaching all kinds of stuff. And I think God's really speaking to the church. It's like, would you get back to what I've called you to actually do and be? Just like he told the children of Israel. He says, quit messing around with the false gods. Stop taking advantage of your neighbor. Quit living in sin, in other words. And start worshiping me. Because when you're not hearing my voice, that means there's something wrong. And so if you get a sign from me on top of the fact that I'm no longer speaking to you, you haven't heard my voice, you might want to be concerned about that. So in the very last days, Jesus mentions that there would be signs in the heavens. And he tells us to watch. And he does so four times. Interesting that these moons come in tetrads, that's four. And so Jesus says there's going to be signs in the heavens and watch, and he does so on four different occasions. They're in Luke 21 is one of them. And then he warns of these events that would mark the end. And so for me, what it does is this. It causes me to look at the world through a biblical lens. Through a biblical lens. In other words, I'm concerned about the things that God's concerned about. 
I'm concerned that my life matches up to what his word says. I'm concerned that my family is, is living in the center of God's will as best as we possibly can. That we as a church are concerned about the things that concern God. What's God concerned about? He's concerned about our neighbors. He's concerned about the preaching of the gospel. He's very definitely concerned about the teaching of his word. And that that word would be the word which he has spoken, not something made up by men. Not the prosperity gospel. Not the progressive gospel. Not the gay gospel. The gospel. The one that the Bible actually teaches. That we would teach the word of God. That means the part that is already in front of us that we have written authored by the Holy Spirit, not some other gospel, as the Apostle Paul said. Because there are other gospels. Right now, we have a social gospel that's being preached. That somehow, if we just politicize, there's a political gospel that's being preached. Those are all false gospels. There's exactly one gospel. And involves the one and only Jesus Christ, who is the one and only Lord, the one and only Savior. The rest of the Gospels are false Gospels. And so we need to be busy with the real one. The one that honors that God has only one Son. That he sent his only Son into this world, the world through him might be saved. That he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. That he was both God and man. That he was put to death, falsely accused, and died on Calvary's cross for my sins. That he was buried in a grave he laid there for three days and was raised up by the power of God. And he was seen by countless witnesses after he was raised. And he ascended into heaven and there he stays to this day making intercession for his people. That gospel. That's the real gospel. That's the one that we should be preaching because that's the one that can save. The children of Israel had a chance and they traded the real word of God for a false word. And so I say this to us. We need to always watch. We need to be able to escape that which is coming, and in Christ we will and shall. But the way everyone escapes is by being in Christ, so that should be our message. And then we teach the full counsel of God's word. Everything that God wants for us as a people, we should endeavor to do. And so as Jesus spoke these words, he said, to this end, watch. So I'm not date setting, but I am telling you, Maranatha, the Lord comes. One day Jesus is coming back, and one day he is going to peek his head through the clouds. And one day we are going to be caught up together with him in the air who know him. And then he's coming again as the lion of the tribe of Judah to take back this earth that belongs to him. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. If you're here tonight, and you know, maybe you came with a friend. You don't know the Lord. You haven't invited Jesus into your heart. You haven't said yes to the author of the, the gospel. Jesus authored the gospel. He's the one that actually wrote it because he wrote it with his blood. He said, this is how much I love you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If that's you, we have a prayer team in our prayer room right after service. But before you even get there, you can just simply invite Christ into your life right now. And so if you want to do that, let's bow our heads, close our eyes, we'll pray. And I'm just going to lead in a simple prayer. If you need to invite Christ, just simply pray along with me. For the rest of us, make it a recommitment of your life to Christ because he really is what matters in these days. Father, we believe, I believe, that you, Jesus, 
came to this earth as a man and you lived a sinless life and you died on Calvary's cross and you did that for me. And in doing so, you paid the price for my sin. And if I will invite you into my life, which I have, Lord, and I pray for anyone who hasn't, that they would invite you right now to come into their life, that we would invite you in and you will sup with us. And so, Lord, we we ask you to do that again fresh. Lord, we need you to be in our lives alive and well. God, we believe that you laid in that grave for three days and you were raised and you're now alive. You purchased eternal life for us. And Lord, we also believe that you're coming again. And so we want to be ready for when you call us home. And we want those around us to go with us, Lord. And so we pray that you'd make us emissaries of your gospel. Cause us to preach Christ wherever we go. Lord, we love you. We thank you for those that are here tonight in you and for those that tonight may have prayed that prayer, invited you in, Jesus. God, bless us as we share our faith with others. Lord, we can't wait to get home. And so we pray with the Apostle John, Maranatha, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in your name we pray. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.